all our lives, we've been told to go to school, get good grades, get a good job, and you'll be set. How's that working out for you? I'm Tavana Denise, physical therapist turned life and business coach, and I'm on a mission to help you create a life you love and a business on your terms. If you want more time, more freedom, more flexibility, I can help you create it. Welcome to Breaking Protocol, the show for women in healthcare who want more. Welcome, Lindsay, to the Breaking Protocol podcast for women entrepreneurs in healthcare. And I am excited to have you because we're going to get into some good and juicy things that I think are going to help everyone personally, professionally, as they build their business, as they think about building their business. And I believe our talk is going to spill over into their relationships. <laughs> so uh, just to introduce you first, Lindsay, my good friend here, is a licensed social worker, biracial financial therapist, speaker, author, and founder of the company Mind Money Balance, where she uses financial psychology to help high-earning couples strengthen their relationship with money and eliminate money arguments. Mm -hmm. Lindsay is also the author of the book, The Financial Anxiety Solution. And she's featured all over the place in big podcast names that I'll let her tell you about here. <laughs> book, it just came too late for me to read it before we got on the show, but I'm excited for you to be here. So thank you, Lindsay. Oh, thank you, Tavada. I, you know, you and I have had such a good, you know, friendship and I love what you are doing in this space. And I'm so excited to be here, you know, as a social worker slash, slash, slash the things, you know, podcaster, author, entrepreneur. I think it's really helpful for healthcare providers to see that there are, you know, creative ways to use your skill set and use your strengths. So I'm really excited to dive into all of this. Yes. 100%. So I just got your book, The Financial Anxiety Solution in the mail. And then I wiped it down because of, you know, coronavirus. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I'm, I'm eager to dive into it. But the, the title itself got me. And so I'd love for you to help me understand what is financial anxiety? And actually, how did you make the shift from social work to mm -hmm. the field of financial therapy? Like, Yeah, so I'll start there. So the shift came pretty organically. So I was a trained clinical social worker, and I primarily worked in the field of anxiety and depression. I spent years in psychiatric research and really loved learning the data of which types of interventions worked. And what I had seen in my interpersonal work was that money issues came up all the time, as you can imagine. But as a social worker, my training was really about advocating for clients. So it was, how can I help you call the energy company and manage your money there? How can I send you to, you know, somebody else to tell you how to refinance your debt? But I felt this, this feeling in the room of they wanted more and I also wanted more. I felt like I had created a space where they were comfortable enough to say, hey, I'm struggling. And my response was, okay, great, call somebody else. And that just didn't sit right with me. 
So I, in my own life, had an interest in personal finance. I graduated from undergrad in 2008 at the, you know, the, the last financial crisis we were in. And so I had to learn really quickly about personal finances. Um, so I really found it fascinating. So in my own life, I was a little bit of a personal finance nerd. And then in my professional life, I was seeing this come up and I wanted to help my clients look at money with the lens of emotional and psychological wellness, because that really spoke to me. So I sought out additional training and I got cross-trained in financial social work and in financial therapy. And that led me to where I am today. My private practice is mostly with high earning couples. Again, just kind of happened organically when I originally hung my virtual shingle up and said, you know, now accepting financial therapy clients. I had a lot of people come in as individuals who were partnered or married. And what they would say to me is, oh, my partner's not here because it's really just my problem. And I went, hmm, this isn't going to work out too well. So I quickly, maybe not quickly, within like, you know, six months to a year, I said, if you're partnered, seriously partnered or married, I need to have both of you in the room so we can do this work. And so my role is really about helping them understand the emotions that we associate with money, the psychology of money, how it shows up for us, what we associate with it, and help people to understand that first before we get into like all of the, the terms around like budgeting and spending and investments and retirement, right? We first have to sort out how we're thinking and feeling about money before we can engage with it. Right. Well, I have a question though, because mm -hmm. when you were doing the work one-on-one -on -one, and if they were seriously partnered with someone, why, what, how did you come to the thought like, this is not going to work if both people are not in the room? Because what I would have happen is somebody would say, I just have to cut down my spending. I just have to invest more. I just have to learn about money. And what was happening was it was creating a chasm between the two people where they were no longer on the same page. And what also I would see happening was this fear of talking about money that somehow in that relationship, if you talked about money, that it would cause an argument or um, discomfort. So I would see these couples say subconsciously or consciously, we don't talk about money because it's going to be awkward or cause a fight. So therefore we don't talk about it until we have to, when one of us loses a job or one of us gets an opportunity to move and then we have to talk about it, but then tensions are high because the emotions are really raw and really flying. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is we do get into some sort of heated discussion and then we go, see, this is why we don't talk about money and we put it away again. So right. my so then job it's a is self -fulfilling to say- Self-fulfilling prophecy. Totally. Totally. Exactly. Yeah. So how do people choose to then begin the discussion around money before it gets to that heated point and then they fulfill the prophecy of we don't talk about money because it's going to cause an argument? Like, yeah. how do you begin that discussion? Yeah, I love this question because it's really about thinking about some of the more positive things that money can afford us. So I love to start clients off by talking about 
where do you want to be in five years? What are the things that you want to do? And they'll say things like, oh, you know, I want to be out of student loan debt, or, you know, we really love to downsize, or we'd like to move, or whatever it may be, right? So they kind of paint this picture of their lives. And then I ask them to start monetizing it. Well, how much money would you need to do that? What do you think you would have to get in order to do that? And what we do there is we start to create new associations with money that are healthy, that are positive, or at least neutral. And then we can work towards the scarier money conversation. So it sounds so bizarre to say like, we have to think bigger before we can think into the day to day. But that's what I've learned because so much personal finance is like, you have to know your budget. You have to know your numbers, which there is a thousand percent truth in knowing that. And it is empowering. But if you don't understand how to regulate your emotions, when you interact with your money, you're not going to get very far. Well, and that's interesting that you bring it up and you and I have a similar approach in terms of how we start. Like, I always want to know what is this business for? Like, cause this is not easy work. So I want to know what, what are we creating on the other end? And I'd love to know if you find this to be the case in your work too, that when you begin this discussion of, okay, what is it that you want? What do you want? Then you hear people talk about all the things they don't want or that people have trouble really kind of dreaming about what it is. And I wonder, is there an association between I'm afraid to look at money and talk about money, but I'm also afraid to dream about the things I want that potentially cost money because then I'm afraid I won't be able to get those things. Oh, you are. Yeah. So there's definitely an association there. So there are four financial archetypes, just like there are personality types like the Enneagram, the Myers-Briggs, StrengthsFinders. So there are four money archetypes. And the one that you just described is the blissfully ignorant. And interestingly, most people who are who fall into that category tend to be women and tend to be people in the mental health profession. But my guess is it's also healers because we have been told as healers, as helpers, that we must not care about money to be doing our jobs. Money must not be something that's important to us. So we've also soaked up that information. So it creates exactly what you're talking about, this push-pull of, yes, I want those things, but does it make me bad for dreaming big? Am I greedy for wanting more? And then that kind of gets in the way of setting up some of those bigger goals. Fascinating. Because I'm always puzzled when someone tells me that like, I want to have this business, I'm frustrated where I am. And then I'm like, okay, cool. What do you want? And how much does it take or how much does it cost? Because I'm, I'm in that space too, where it's like, okay, this is a simple math problem. Mm-hmm. What do you want? How much does it cost to get it? Let's go make some more money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. Right? So then what do you do with the person that you find to be in that archetype of being blissfully ignorant? And, and if you don't mind expanding, like what are the four types? Mm-hmm. So yeah, maybe it'd be helpful for me just to do a brief primer on the four and then I can talk about what I might be doing. So I actually just put a podcast episode out on this. So it's perfect timing to go like way Yay. deeper into that. Um, but Essentially, we've got these these four types and the blissfully ignorant is the person who finds themselves subconsciously or consciously agreeing with statements like good money don't or good people don't care about money or having more money doesn't make you a good person or 
um, interacting with money makes me feel uncomfortable. So they tend to find themselves thinking in that way. And the behaviors might be things like, I don't really engage with my money, but things kind of seem to work themselves out. So I'm going to try and just like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Just kind of back away from it, engage the least amount possible to not do any damage, but not really get into it. The next one is the money admirer. And this is the person who consciously or subconsciously agrees with statements like having more money would fix all my problems. Um, it's important to work hard for your money. Um, things like that. The money admirer is really about the, the sense of value that they get when their net worth or their income increases. They really associate their self-worth with their money. Um, and then the next type is the doomsday prepper, which is the person who agrees with statements like, I'd be a nervous wreck if I didn't have money for an emergency. I feel like it's an important value to look for the best deal before finding something. I think it's rude to talk to others about how much money they make or have. Um, and then the final one is the spender. And that is the person who believes that the consumption of things is going to make them feel better. They really value having things that might be more associated with like status symbols. They really associate the outward appearance of wealth, whether real or false, because we know plenty of people can look wealthy who are not in healthy financial situations, but they believe that that outward appearance somehow validates things for them. So those are the four money archetypes. Wow. So if, if we're saying it's highly likely that a number of healthcare professionals and women are mm -hmm. in blissfully ignorant category, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how do we start to uncover that for ourselves? Like one, to recognize that we're in, we might be in that space or in that category. And mm -hmm. two, how do we start to uncover or unpack the stories that we've developed around money to shape that personality? Yeah. So it's so helpful to go back in time and this helps to alleviate any shame you may have about your current relationship with money. We know neurodevelopmentally as children, we're soaking up a ton of information between the ages of zero and seven or zero and eight. So we want to go way back to when you were younger and start to think about the, the money stories you were soaking up in your household, in your school, at church, in your neighborhood. And when I tell people that this is a good first step, they often are like, what are you talking about? When I was six, we didn't talk about money. But the thing is we are constantly talking about money, even if we aren't saying the word money. So things like we can't afford that, or that, you know, that type of car is for this type of person, or it's pious to give a lot of your money away, right? We're soaking up these messages and we are reading these social cues regardless. So I encourage people to think of times when like, did you ever see your parents sitting down to pay bills? What do you remember that energy being like in the room when you walked into the room and the bills were scattered all over? Do you remember your parents feeling like pretty calm and collected? Do you remember it feeling pretty tense? Do you remember feeling fearful? Like what was going on there? And then we can start to go, okay, my body and brain learned to respond to those cues at a young age to help keep me safe. And a way I think particularly women are socialized is like, you know, around that blissfully ignorant piece is that like women shouldn't care about money. That's not a feminine thing to do. Um, 
so I think we have to start going, okay, I started learning that message when I was young. It makes sense why that message might be kind of flowing through my brain and what can I do to move forward? How true is it? How true is it that you can't be feminine and have money? How true is it that you can't be a healer and make a good income from it? And once we start unpacking that and going, well, those are just you know words I smashed together and believed, but they aren't facts, then we can start that healing process. Oh, very cool. I love that you use how true it is it. And I just say, is that true? Right? Oh, so yeah. <laughs> on the same vein, right? Awesome. Yes. And so I heard you bring up the idea of shame when it came to the doomsdayer. Mm-hmm. And I think this was interesting as I was looking at your Instagram page about um, financial survivor's guilt. Yes. And yes. It's making me wonder now that you're talking about the the four archetypes because of the circumstances that we find Mm -hmm. ourselves in with COVID-19, coronavirus and everything. I actually have had conversations with people that are like in hushed tones. Well, I'm fine, Mm -hmm. but I feel bad Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And the shame Mm -hmm. around having money and having Mm -hmm. had prepared and things like that. So can you explain what the concept actually is and what people can do to cope with it. Yeah, I am so glad you brought this up. So financial survivor guilt is something that I have noticed. And I make really clear in that Instagram post that this is not something that's in the DSM. This is not something that you can diagnose. But I was looking at what our culture and our world was experiencing right now. And we are experiencing collective trauma. So to me, I went to the trauma resources in my social worker brain and was like, what is going on? Why am I feeling those things that you had mentioned? Or why am I hearing those things come up in my clients? I feel bad that dot, dot, dot. And I'm like, where else have I heard this before? And I went, oh, survivor's guilt. So survivor's guilt is what happens when you undergo a traumatic experience and somebody close to you was hurt or unfortunately lost their lives and you were okay. So this is the person who's in a car crash and they walk away with like a scratch, whereas a loved one may have ended up in the ICU, right? There's so much guilt over why was I saved or why didn't I get hurt or why wasn't it me? And I saw that same thing happen with our finances right now. So for a lot of people, not everybody, right? We know at the date of our recording right now, one in seven people in the US are are working on filing for unemployment or have lost their job. So there's a huge number of people who are really hurting. And that means that six out of the seven Americans have not lost their jobs or they've taken a decreased income or something like that. So they're impacted, but they're not as impacted as other people. And what I wanted to do with this financial survivor lens was to help this financial guilt survivor lens, excuse me, is to help people see that these feelings are normal. They happen in cases of crisis or emergency, and it doesn't make you worse because you have these particular resources, right? You know, I know you're a huge Brene Brown fan. (laughs) She talks about um, comparative suffering or comparative guilt, right? Like, why am I not suffering as much as the other person? Or why am I suffering more than the other person? And how that's a lose-lose situation. So this is the concept of financial survivor's guilt. Oh, very cool. So maybe then we can contrast that with financial anxiety a little Mm -hmm. bit more and 
because there are the both ends of the spectrum, right? You have yeah. the people that are like, oh, well, I'm actually kind of okay in, in spite of all of this. Mm-hmm. And then there's the one of seven who mm-hmm. their, their bank accounts, their lives, their finances have kind of been decimated mm-hmm. by the coming of the coronavirus. So mm-hmm. what would you say for that person that's experiencing that right now? Yes. How should they approach it or think about it? So I want to first point out something that I, I heard. I don't think you did it on purpose, but I'm going to point this out so people can hear. A lot of people think financial anxiety only happens if you have a lack of income or a lack of money. And financial anxiety can cut across all socioeconomic statuses and all income levels. So you can experience anxiety and have survivor's guilt, right? You can go, oh my gosh, I'm anxious that I might run out of money. And oh my gosh, I still have more than others. Um, right. Just like that second archetype that you described. Yes. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So with what do we do if we are in this place where our income has stopped or it has been you know, put on pause and we're fear, feeling really fearful? One thing that's really interesting about our current situation is that there is less shame in losing a job right now because it's less about you as a person somehow having some sort of shortfall, right? We are at least able logically to go, I didn't lose my job because I'm a bad worker or because I'm not good at what I do. It's because quite literally there isn't that job for me to do or there isn't that person to help me pay for the service that I provided or the work that I did. And as crazy as it is to say that it's temporary, it is. We don't know how long this will last. We don't know what the ripple effect of this will be. So I'm not downplaying that at all. But knowing that you aren't alone and that this is temporary is hugely helpful. And it's also helpful to come back to yourself and say, when have I survived hard situations before? When have I made it through when I didn't think I was going to make it before? And tapping back into your own resilience can be hugely powerful and empowering right now. Very cool. And I like that approach on that side because it does help us build the resilience and cultivate the grit, right? Mm -hmm. So that we can use this in this situation and any situation in our lives. So on the more practical like logistical step-by-step, what can a person do once they've done that work of unpacking the stories, building the resilience and thinking, how have I, how else have I survived something very difficult? What can they do in terms of their day-to-day finances or some practical things? Yeah. So that is really another thing that I love talking about, which is personal finance is A, personal, but B, it's not that complicated. All the noise in the personal finance space makes it sound like it's really confusing, like you don't belong or that it's not for you. And really, it comes down to three things. It comes down to understanding what's coming in and what's going out each month, which some people call a budget. Some people call a spending plan. Doesn't matter. Whatever language suits you is fine. I'm in the allocandy. Allocated spending plan bunch. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. Because it's that to me is so much less restrictive and so much more empowering. And it means that it can change. It's just a plan. Um, So yeah, that's number one is know what's coming in and what's going out. 
Number, and I can dive more into these two. Number two is making sure you have some sort of cushion in the form of an emergency fund. And then number three is investing in your future. And number three is where I think a lot of people get thrown off because I would categorize investing in your future as things like paying down debt, um, putting money into a retirement account, making sure you have a will and a trust or life insurance. If you have children, are you saving for their futures? So there's a lot there in that investing in your future. And I think that's where a lot of people are like, wow, oh, it's too much. <laughs> I don't want to go there. Whereas the first two, as boring as they may sound, they're pretty tangible. Right. So one of the things I took Dave Renzi's Financial Peace University mm -hmm. 10 years ago now, and mm -hmm. it, it was very helpful in getting a handle on how to objectively look at my finances and not freak out and all of these things. Yeah. And one of the questions that I had at the time and that I hear come up for people is this possibly a balance between building that emergency fund and paying down debt. So mm -hmm. how do you walk people through that dance of steps two and three in your process? Oh yeah, that's it's so funny. This exact question came up last night in a different live I was doing. So I normally, you can do them side by side. And actually, I think you can always do them side by side. I think you can build up your emergency fund while you invest in your future by paying down debt or by actually um, putting money into the stock market. But I think that right now we are really seeing that cash is queen, right? Having some money in the bank provides not just financial security, but I'm seeing so many people feel that emotional relief of knowing that there's money easily accessible. So while yes, you can do them side by side, I encourage each person to go, what feels better for me? Does it feel better to have five grand in the bank or five grand less in debt? And it, this, this is where it gets really complicated or where people make it complicated because they're like, well, the interest, you should look at the interest rate on your debt and what feel like, look at the numbers and don't get emotional about it and pay off your debt because debt is so bad. And we, we have to check back in with ourselves again and again and again. And if even though logically paying down that debt might be the smarter thing to do. I'm, you know, doing quotes for the people who are listening on the podcast. <laughs> we have to come back to what feels good for us. And I've, I've seen so much right now that having a bigger emergency fund is helping people to feel much more safe and much more secure because having less debt doesn't mean you can pay your landlord. Having less debt doesn't mean you can buy your groceries. So that's my philosophy right now. Um, and I would just encourage each person to think about what works for them. Oh, I love that, that approach in terms of what feels good to you, because mm -hmm. just like the four archetypes, there are different personalities, things might feel different to different people. And I had to ask myself that very question mm -hmm. when I decided to invest in my business, like mm -hmm. what felt better? And the mm -hmm. answer was, and not, or <laughs> like, let's yeah, do both. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then when Corona came, it was like, mm, let's rethink this aggressive repayment strategy here. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think where I would love to kind of settle in because your, your area is in the couple space. And we talked a little bit about beginning the conversation when you're a part of, when you're in a partnership to talk about money, but one of the things that I read often 
about <laughs> is about how opposites attract. And that's often when it comes to the, the money mm -hmm. tendencies. Mm -hmm. And so how does that often show up in your practice and how do you help people navigate that if they are more conservative and they're dealing with someone who is a spender? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it again comes back to the relationship and their values. So I hear all the time, I'm a saver and they're a spender, or they're a spender and I'm a saver, or, you know, we, we have just different philosophies. So again, zooming out and getting away from the tedium of the day-to-day -day money stuff can be really helpful for understanding the why behind each person's behavior. So an example I use all the time is one person really loves to have a lot of money in cash. They like to have a lot of money in their bank that they can see that is where they want their money to go. Another person in the partnership is like, no, I want to put a ton of money into the stock market and I want to invest in real estate. That's where I want the money to go. And so those seem very different on the surface. One seems more risky. One seems more conservative. But when we go, why? Why is it important you have money in the bank? Why is it important for you to invest? And we start to elicit the values in that couple. Oftentimes it'll sound like, well, to me, having money in the bank feels really safe and secure and powerful. And for the other person, they go, you know what, to me, knowing that my money is earning money feels safe and secure and powerful. So once we can say, okay, those are the values that you have aligned, how can we tweak each of those behaviors so that you each have your needs met? That's when we're really going to make good growth and make financial plans that work for each person and for that couple. Very cool. And I think the last place, especially because the people that tend to listen to this podcast have an entrepreneurial spirit, any thoughts, especially as you have made the change from employee to entrepreneur, what would be your thoughts around that? Like, what should a person think about, prepare for, um, if they have any fears? I personally had a fear thought around if I go into business for myself, I'm going to lose everything because of a story that I made up when I was a kid mm -hmm. with, when mm -hmm. I saw my dad with his business. And mm -hmm. I had to acknowledge that and break down the, the lie in that. Mm -hmm. So what things do you see happen to people when they decide to go into entrepreneurship or they decide to cut the tie between employee to entrepreneurship? Yeah, I think it's really important to keep the conversation with yourself and the conversation with your partner open. You know, having some sort of guideline and benchmark so you guys can both be on the same page throughout the entrepreneurial journey because it will not be linear as all the healthcare entrepreneurs know. There's going to be ups and downs. There are going to be times where you're like, yes, I made the best choice. And there's going to be times where you're like, oh my gosh, I need to find a new job at, at the hospital, right? So working together about like, what are the, the things that we need to do? So how much money do I need to bring in each month? Bottom line. So taking a look at, I know I need to be able to pay my rent, pay for my car, pay off some loans and be able to feed myself or whatever those essentials are for you. How, and, and looking towards that, how much money do I need to make? What can I do? Like you were saying earlier, what's the math problem I need to solve for to bring that money in? And 
this isn't about a scarcity mindset, but when is it time to say I need to pivot and not quit, but pivot? When is it time to go, wow, I've really gone all in on this one area and the, the return financially is just not working. So thinking about like really thoughtfully thinking through those questions alone and with your partner and making sure those conversations are ongoing is going to be hugely, hugely helpful because we don't want either person to feel like they're in the dark about what's going on. Um, and we also don't want it to like dominate every single conversation. So I'm a huge fan of money dates, which is exactly what it sounds like sitting down and saying like, Hey, here's the one or two things I really want to chat about. Um, let's, let's make sure to talk through it. Let's carve out some space that isn't in the heat of the moment, um, and really be thoughtful and intentional about it. So starting to kind of fold money dates into your relationship, particularly for those who are in a partnership where one person's an entrepreneur and one person is traditionally employed because those mindsets are very different and one is not better than the other. They are just different. So those conversations are going to have to be much more consistent and ongoing. I like the idea of the money date simply because I, were, I think it was, I can't think of who it was now, comedian. Anyways, he was talking about one of the things that men absolutely hate to hear is we need to talk. <laughs> and so if you have this money date, then yeah. it's, a, it's a regular thing where you can air what's, whatever's on your mind and what you're mm -hmm. thinking about. And one of the things that sometimes happens, not always, but in conversation with people who are looking at investing, women who are looking at investing in themselves and their business, and maybe they are in that situation where they are the entrepreneur and their husband is the more employee mindset. What kinds of things can they do to approach that conversation where they're like, honey, listen, I'm thinking about investing in this software, this coach, this whatever mm -hmm. to grow my business or to grow, to grow myself. Because I have already noticed that a lot of women, period, whether or not they're healthcare, whether or not they're entrepreneurs, at times have difficulty spending money on themselves. Yeah. So then you layer it in with, okay, we got to have our money conversation. And I'm talking about taking a risk and you're in the employee mentality and conservative. So what are some things that women entrepreneurs that find themselves in that space can do to empower themselves to thoughtfully and powerfully have that conversation? I think that it's really important to, with your business, to treat it as such. So at the beginning of the year, setting out some big goals for yourself and then quarterly kind of breaking them down. And if we think about applying a traditionally employed uh, framework to an entrepreneur, we want to think about what are the benefits of being traditionally employed? Well, there are days off, <laughs> there's sick time, there's often money set aside for personal and professional development. So also kind of writing out your ideal job description and what those benefits would include. If in a traditionally employed place, you would be able to have a week or two to go on a professional development retreat, or you would be able to go to three different conferences a year, then build that also into your entrepreneur practice. So thinking about 
What are the goals for me as an entrepreneur? What do I need my business to do? What's missing there? Are there places I can invest? And making really strategic decisions. What we don't want to have happen that I often see in the entrepreneur space is like there's this fear of investing, fear of investing, fear of investing. And then it's almost like the floodgates open and it's like consume, 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 consume. I need all the podcasts. I need all the personal development information. I need all the coaches. And I think really, really zooming into what do I need for me? Do I need one-on-one coaching? Yeah. Okay, great. Do I need to be in a a conference of like-minded people? Cool. Do I need to learn more about different social media platforms? Great. But being really strategic and not being pulled by anxiety or scarcity of like, I need to do this or I'll never be able to grow. Checking in and going, what do you need to do strategically? And how do you build that professional development in just like you would in a traditional employment? So then speaking to your partner about it and saying like, look, here's what I'm thinking. I want to go to three conferences or I want to join this coaching group or I want to hire this business coach. Here's the financial investment. Here's the return on investment. I'm anticipating this is the why. Um, And it's not about getting your partner's like stamp of approval, but it's more making sure you've also thought through really carefully and really wisely what makes the most sense for you and for your business. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. Because one of the things that I talk about quite often is the shiny object syndrome. And I so I, that. I've been there. <laughs> I've, I've tried to throw money at my business. It just doesn't work. And one of the things that I really, really am working towards helping the clients with is having that strategy or at minimum having the long-term goal to always pit any decision against. Like, mm-hmm. does this align with what I'm trying to do? Which, thank you so much for giving another good reason for doing that. And then, mm-hmm. it, then it, I think, also helps people to calm down a bit yeah. when it comes to talking to their partner about these investments that they're going to make, particularly when they are not the primary breadwinner mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of the family. So... Great. So any last piece of advice or thoughts or things that we might not have covered that you think are important to share? I think it's important to share that money is complicated because we make it so, but we also need to give ourselves compassion that it's going to take some time to sort out our relationship with money. Particularly for people in the healthcare field, I think this is an easy parallel to draw which is think about the way you learn about or teach your clients or patients about food. It's an ongoing conversation. You tweak and change and learn as you go. And money is very similar in that we're you know, interacting with it almost daily, right? We're earning it, we're spending it, we're lending it, we're saving it. We're interacting with it all the time, and yet we don't give ourselves the same type of permission we would as if we were doing anything else that we were engaging with. So I just want people to know that it won't be a one and done and to give yourselves permission and compassion that this is going to be an ongoing thing, but it doesn't have to be like painful or hard. There can definitely be those moments, but a testimonial I recently got from a a client of mine was, yeah, we joined because we wanted to feel better. We wanted to feel relief, but we, they and their partner not only felt relief, but they felt fun and energized by learning how to talk about money in this way. So I want to share that, that like, it's not about just checking it off your to-do list. It's about building it into your life as, as a powerful and fun and supportive part of things. 
Mm -hmm. It's one of the things that I talk about, like in terms of thought work as well and managing your mindset, it's like taking a shower. You got to do it every day or at least every other day. Something's (laughs) going to start to smell around here. (laughs) So the same thing. And we just, it's one of those things where we're like, okay, I got to take a shower. It's just something that I do. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to checking in on our finances or checking in on our mindset and how Mm -hmm. we're feeling mentally, emotionally, spiritually, it's like, oh, why do I have to do that again? Mm -hmm. You know? So awesome. So if anyone is looking at, getting some support from you, who would be the best person to reach out and how can they connect with you? Yeah. So I am licensed. Um, I, let me back it up. I coach couples all over the place. Um, I do it through my group-based coaching program, which is called Boundless. It's for high earning couples. And the reason I did it in a group-based model is for accountability and to take away some of the shame that we might've soaked up about money. So many of the couples are like, Oh, I'm not alone. Oh, thank God you said that. Right. And we know how healing that can be to know that you're not alone. So I open up enrollment occasionally throughout the year, but I would encourage if this conversation lit you up, you know, piqued your curiosity, find me on social media. I'm at Mind Money Balance on Instagram and on Facebook. That's the name of my podcast. And you can be kind of up to date on when I launch Boundless again. But that would be my suggestion is go go check me out, follow along, see what it feels like to have some money stuff show up in your feed. And, and I love to connect with people. Hey, thank you so much for being here and just for being awesome. I learned a lot. I can't wait for the transcript because I didn't get to take as many notes as I would have liked to, but thank you so much for what you do and for sharing with all the ladies that are attempting to break protocol. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on. It's such a pleasure. Thanks, Tamana.